0: Olympic medalist and Tour de France podium finisher coach Bobby Julik and outskirts visionary Gus Morton invite you to put your socks on. From insightful analysis into our sport's most iconic races and racers to entertaining, educational, and actionable advice, Fizzo is an illuminating deep dive into the art and science of bike racing. Be prepared to put your socks on.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Put Your Socks On. My name is Bobby Julik, and as always, my trusted co-host, Gus Morton. How are you doing today, Gus? Bobby, I'm
2: really, really well as always. How could you complain with a stage like that?
1: Good one. It was a good one. Uh, loved seeing Toms go up the road, put the smack down. Um, very, very interesting stage today.
2: Yeah, first of, uh, first of two days in the Vosges Mountains, um, before we get into the the details, let me just give you a little lad land. 175Ks. Uh, it was from a town called Saint-Dé-de-Vosges to Colmar. Uh, it was the first time it started in saint de de FYI. And uh, that city is also what is known as a three-star floral city. So mediocre on the botanicals. Uh, went through beautiful national park. It was undulating all day. Um, crossing over to Colmar, which uh, FYI, four star floral city, so slightly more uh, fragrant. Uh, Heinrich Hauser won the stage here in 2009, which was uh, a rainy day. I remember that stage well, actually. Um, it was kind of hilly stage, and, and prior to that, he hadn't really won. He'd kind of been more of a sprinter, more of a small group sprinter. So it was it was pretty epic to see that. Um, the finish today, pretty straight run in. There was a, a roundabout about four hundred meters out, but apart from that, yeah, pretty straight, pretty straight shot into the finish there. Uh, anything to add, Bobby?
1: Well, I heard it's a little manufacturing region for sauerkraut, and one of my vices is hot dogs, and I love putting sauerkraut on hot dogs or you know the little bratwurst that they have. Um, big major major fan of that as well as pretzels. But that Alsace region is probably the most – has the most recreational cyclists in all of France. I've heard that from quite a few people because the roads are so good and so on and so forth. There's forward. a lot of
2: mountain biking there too, like 400Ks of mountain bike trails.
1: Really? Really? Yeah. And and Alsace is one of the few regions where the grape variety in the wine is permitted to be on the bottle. I think that's that's pretty pretty cool. And most of the wine produced in that area – is the age-worthy whites, and you know that's age-worthy is everything with with white wine, right? But the Riesling is always, pretty much always dry, but Pinot Gris, which is made from the richer style Pinot Grigio, which is the same grape over in Italy, that can be either, either dry or sweet. So yeah, gotcha. I mean. You know, cyclists love wine, cyclists love coffee, cyclists love riding their bikes, and that seems to be a pretty amazing area. And, you know, evidently it's quite fragrant. But when you say Category 3 or 3-star, 4-star fragrant city, like is 5-star the the biggest?
2: Uh, Yeah, I've got no idea. I just noted that, and I was like, that's a very odd rating for a city to have. So I thought I'd throw it in there. If there's any listeners out there who know, I'm presuming it's five stars, but they should get in touch with us and, and tell us what the that's all about um, because, yeah, I've got absolutely no idea. Bobby, you uh, lost one place in the general classification here when the tour finished in 2001, I believe.
1: Oh, yeah. I remember that day quite well. <laughs> I re- remember that day quite well. We started off with Stuart O'Grady in the yellow jersey. We had just won the team time trial. Um the, the stage itself, I kind of thought that I would take over because I didn't think that Stewart would, um, you know, survive those climbs there at the end going into Colmar. So I was I was on point. I think I even took a bonus sprint here and there and moved myself into the virtual mile Jaune or yellow jersey. Uh, but then with the last climb, Jalabert attacked and I tried to go after him. And at the same time, my teammate and best friend Jens Vogt went as well. So it was kind of that hesitation, and to be honest, Jens was stronger than me. But he went on, finished, I think, second or third on the stage. Jalabert won the stage, and he wound up taking the yellow jersey instead of myself. So I was a little bit disappointed, but at the same time, kept the yellow jersey in the team, kept it with my roommate and best friend. But I have to say, when you look back after your career is over and you think of those opportunities to touch yellow, that, that one stands out. So... I don't know who found that factoid, and now I'm kind of disappointed that I remember that. But (laughs) I I do remember. I do remember. Mate,
2: I don't think there's anything to be disappointed about. Uh, Yeah, that's uh, bittersweet. Bittersweet, Colmar. Let's um, before we get into the details of uh, of today's race, let's um, let's 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 get the road ID to a trivia.
1: Yeah, here we go again. Tour trivia. To play, head on over to roadid.com slash TDF. And today's question, and hopefully I know this one because I kind of speak French. The nickname for the Tour de France, Le Grand Boucle, translates to what? Go to roadid.com slash TDF to answer this question and score a chance to win today's daily prize, which is a Thule T2 Pro XT bike rack. One lucky winner will even take home a ten thousand dollar shopping spree. Again, that's roadid.com slash TDF.
2: I have no idea what Le Grand Boucle means.
1: Le Grand Boucle. And I speak fluent French. Le Grand Boucle. But honestly, if my daughter was here and heard me pronounce that, she'd probably say, Dad, you're all cringy, you can't even speak French. But <laughs> I've heard that my accent is 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 is, is quite a la American. <laughs>
2: yeah I always get a bit cringy when when you try and like you're in a foreign country and you try and speak the language or you can speak you try and speak the language and you're just like this doesn't sound right coming out of my mouth um let's the start of today's stage it was on from the gun it was a a, a medium hilly day and an odd day because it fell uh whilst there was a couple of you know sort of semi-mountains in there it falls before the first mountaintop finish so um it was never really going to to be a big kind of general classification day but we knew it was going to be an aggressive day. Talk me through it Bobby.
1: Yeah there was no messing around from kilometer zero today. Uh, they just didn't let three guys roll off the front like they did yesterday. It was as they say in French a la pédale," which basically means with the pedal. There was no tactics. It was the strongest most persistent guys that got into that group. Uh, we had Tom Squinge, uh Clark from Education First, Mads Wurst from Katusha Alpacine and Tim Wellens. And yeah, Tim, he, uh, he had this circled. He was ready to go. And he actually already has a polka dot bike. So his mechanics worked overtime to get him that bike. But he looked pretty baller out there today with the whole kit, including the bike. You know, this early in the tour to already have a polka dot bike <laughs> is, is quite impressive. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that group got off. Strong group. That was kind of what we predicted, but maybe it was almost too strong, because yeah, those guys are are strong riders, and you never they know what's no going to happen. They 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 never really had over what two two and a half minutes the whole time. Yeah, exactly. You know, Bora committed very very early to making sure that that, that didn't get out too far. Um, came into the the first kom, and and Wellens took that. Then uh, Clark took the the sprint which was, um, yeah, I mean, he attacked, so it was a little bit like you He, he kind of went yeah. for it. Yeah, like you said yesterday, it was like, hmm, I wonder, wonder what that's all about. Yeah. Uh, Viviani notably beat Sagan for fourth place, but you could tell that that sprint wasn't full gas on Sagan's behalf. Per- perhaps he was saving himself a little bit for the finish. Uh, yeah, well, he, well, had, it, he
2: had bigger fish to fry.
1: Yeah, yeah. Wellens took the second KOM, and then with 38K to go, we had Mads was, was dropped from the breakaway, so they only had three guys up there. And that's where Tom Squeens just decided to drop the hammer, didn't he? Um, yeah,
2: classic Tom's move, right? He's done that a couple of times in, uh, in various races and to, to, to good effect. So, man, yeah, he went for it. I was surprised. like He, he shelled those guys just straight up, rode them off the wheel.
1: Yeah, in the first couple of days of the tour, he had a stomach problem, so we saw him just swinging on the back. So wow, what a recovery! Um, yeah, really, I didn't I, know that. Yeah, t- you know that's the thing. When you're sick, you're sick, but when you have a bad stomach, you can hopefully recover with with proper ingestion of food and rehydration and stuff like that. So Tom's one wins the kom number three, and then it seemed like Sunweb really took control of the race right there over that that last climb. And, you know, brought brought Tom's back. You know, those guys immediately shelled off the back. And then again, the guy that we keep mentioning that has to be popping up on the radar everywhere is that Maurice cat. Maurice yeah. from from Monty Goubert. He wins the, the the KOM number four and again, putting himself out there saying, hey, I'm not just here yeah, to, to make up the numbers. I'm, I'm part of the part of the real peloton here.
2: Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing how he goes in some of those uh, some of those medium mountain days uh, coming up. He's uh, he's on, he's on. So it's good, it's good to see. Uh, and, and and like he's chasing it as well. You know, he was up there for that one point um, on the second last climb as well. So good to see he's keen for it. It'll be interesting to see how he goes.
1: Yep, points mean prizes in the Tour de France, evidently, and and he's on top of it. Then leading into the downhill, into the sprint. Luckily, we had a nice, clean sprint again. And man it looked like from 3 400 meters out like you could just tell who was going to win. And when Sagan yeah. when Sagan launched that was that was the Sagan that we haven't seen so far with that explosivity. You know good leadouts and, and- from all over but man when he stepped out it was you know took 2 or 3 meters right away and he held it on to the finish. So great win by Peter Sagan. The whole team, obviously from kilometer zero, knew had confidence in him. Rode quite well to to make sure that, that that gap didn't get out too big, because there's nothing like letting that breakaway go to the finish and then winning the sprint for second or third. And they yeah, made sure exactly. they, they made sure it all came back today. So good for them.
2: Yeah, no, he uh, he showed his class as a bike rider. Everyone else was 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 struggling in that finish there. Um, so, man, Sagan, another stage win. And uh if Viviani wants to wants to take that green jersey, uh he's gonna have to, you know, punch out a couple of stage wins on the remaining flat stages in the next week or so because uh if, if Sagan keeps riding like he is, he'll you know, he'll just do what he always does and, and, and get over those high mountains and score those points.
1: And that's how he what does, does it year any- after year. Year after year he does the same thing. Like he doesn't have to win all the stages, but he's always on the podium, always, you know, hoovering up those points. But then, when it comes to a stage like today, when the pure sprinters are out of it, he's still strong enough to to, to make it. But for me, the the standout performance today was from from Tom's. Tom's yeah, is a great. Tom's is a great guy, you know, coming back from that little stomach bug in the beginning. you know, being an ex hinkapi development writer. I've kind of paid attention to him for for a while now, you know, being such close friends with George. And one of the things I learned from about him early on, when I first moved down here to Greenville, was do you know how he learned how to speak English? No. I tell you, maybe it's that generation, but he learned how to speak English by watching The Simpsons. The oh, car- man,
2: I love hearing that because my parents always said, this show is going to make you dumb. You're not allowed to watch it. And yet, now Tom's can speak two languages. How many languages do I speak? One. Here
1: you go, mom and dad. Yep. Cartoons must be the, the answer, you know, throw all uh, out, all that Rosetta Stone stuff and just watch cartoons. You're, you'll learn the, the language perfectly, but Tom's is a huge fan, uh, fan favorite over here in the U S. So just great to see him representing. Yeah, it was indeed.
2: It was indeed. Apart from that, little else happened, did it in the, in terms of the GC battle, like Martin had a mechanical, but, uh, but nothing major. I do want to point out one thing before we move on to uh, to our superfan who I know is waiting, but uh, Edvard Bossenhagen. Man, like the mechanical, he chased that whole climb and, and just the cameras were just with him as he was fighting to get back. And he got back, uh, evidently, completely
1: cooked, but uh,
2: valiant effort nonetheless.
1: Quite valiant, quite valiant. But I tell you one thing, there's nothing worse than when you're suffering – is that camera bike just staying on you the entire time? Like, <laughs> you know, he didn't get dropped. He, you know, had had an issue before and was chasing back on. But I tell you one thing: when you're getting dropped and that camera is just stuck to you, it's it's like the walk of shame, right? You're just kind of shooing those guys away. Like, please, just just leave me alone. Go up and film the race. I'm 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 done. But they do yeah. seem to they they did seem to be quite interested the the TV cameras today staying with Eddie B and uh um, yeah. you know he he fought Ilna's, but ilna
2: zacharin as well they, they were hanging around zacharin poor bastard he's just done the giro he's completely cooked and they're like yeah just hanging on him
1: <laughs> yeah I, I don't think he really was one of our favorites for the gc i mean obviously his name and pedigree speaks for itself but mm. you know another sign coming out of the giro man if you don't recover in time it's 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 tough tough going And we'll have to see, we'll have to see how Nibali responds. And that day is coming. That day of reckoning is coming very quickly.
2: Yeah. Before we get to that, before we get to tomorrow's stage, let's, uh, let's hear from our super fan. Next up super fan.
0: Fellas, good stage today. These usually produce some of my favorite moments of the tour. I love these potential small group finishes today was of course a reduced bunch sprint. Still exciting. Um, what happened, to, uh, what happened to Michael Matthews at the end there? Webb and Bora were pulling pretty strong, and Matthews kind of disappeared at the end, which is a little shocking. But um, good to see Sagan take the win. And I'm, I'm happy to see him back in primo interview form. His, uh, his post-race interview was classic. Go back and watch that if you haven't seen it. Uh, I want to talk a little strategy with you guys. Mainly, Bobby, how do you train or coach tactics with your clients? I'm interested in how you get to become a solid tactician. Does it boil down to being exposed to aggressive racing as a junior, having a good mentor or coach as you're coming up or just losing a lot? Nothing makes you learn like losing. Tell me how you, uh, how you coach tactics.
1: Yeah. I'd have to say that 75% of tactics is, is just natural. I think you can coach a little bit of that, but it's it's difficult because it's it's not just straight condition. It's not straight positioning. It's learning how to conserve your energy at the right time. And, you know, find that one moment, that crucial moment, that race winning moment and make your move with the maximum amount of energy conserved up until that point. So tactics is a very tricky thing. I will have to admit, I don't think I was the best tactical person in terms of understanding the races, because I was much more of a stage racer. So the tactics are a little bit more in slow motion. I was never a one day classic specialist that had to make those sort of decisions on the fly. And, you know, that's the diff- the big difference between one day classics and one day riders compared to GC guys is in a GC, you have time to make up for a mistake. In a one day classic, it's winner take all, right? So if you make one mistake, it's over. So I don't really know how much you can coach. I think a lot of that comes from the experience that you have, the races that you do, when you started, who were your early influencers, and one of the biggest things that I think can help people is actually just watching and rewatching videos. We had, on quite a few teams that I was on in the past, we actually kind of gave guys a a project and that was to study the race from the year before study other races kind of sit there with your buddies or your teammates and kind of talk about you know how how the race was won and what you would do in those situations but it comes down to that split second that you either have that ability or you don't and there's there's very few guys that i believe have every single thing you know, totally drawn up before they get there. A lot of it is just on the fly. It's instinct and you can't coach instinct in my opinion.
0: So that's interesting. Cause I I always kind of wondered that if you guys went back and watched film, um, you know, in all, almost all professional sports, especially baseball, basketball, football, American rules, football, there's so much film that gets watched and analyzed. And, and it's, the, it seems like the nuances in cycling are so fine that you know, you almost have to be in that small group, feeling the mo the moment, to kind of like make decisions, and 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 that's where the tactics really really come into play. You know, how much is being tossed into these riders' ears over the radio while they're you know in a small group? I mean, how much real kind of tactics can you feed through the radio to these guys? Super fan.
1: Well, you got to remember, the radios is definitely a very important part of this whole scenario, right? and it's it's a rule that I actually really like is that in younger races under twenty three races junior races that radios are not allowed because you're you you want these kids to make some mistakes, you want them to learn from this stuff. you don't want to be spoon feeding this stuff to them right out of the junior ranks, and you know once you get into you know the big world tour level, okay, I get it but up to that point it's it's like having your training wheels on right you have to you have to learn and then once you you know get a little bit more comfortable then you take those training wheels off and then you get some help from others but this day and age at this level yes we talked about it yesterday with the director sportifs they're giving a lot of information and yeah that does kind of numb out some riders and they say oh you know the what what came over the radio is what I need to listen to, not really listen to my instincts. And that's where the whole battle or controversy between allowing or disallowing race radios kind of come to the forefront. Do we want to watch people making their, you know, following their instinct and making that on-the-fly decision? Or do we always want to watch guys that are being told what to do? But I think at that level that a guy that, like Philippe Gilbert will override what the instructions are over the radio if he feels that it's the right time. Because remember, these guys are watching the race live on TV on their iPad, maybe with a little three- or four-second delay, or hearing things that come over the race radio, which is, is not always spot-on correct. So I think these, these, the best tacticians and the best riders actually make their own tactic as it comes – and then that is readjusted by the DS once he really sees the situation.
2: Yeah. And we, uh, we're going to actually, uh, hear from, from Philip Gilbert, uh, a little later in the show, we, uh, we managed to sit down with him and, and talk tactics, um, a true master of, of the game. Thank you very much, super fan. Let's, uh, with that, let's move on to the, to the theme and let's, let's, let's talk tactics. I, that's how I um, – when I first started racing a bike at nine years of age, that was like everything my coach um, – that was how he coached me. It wasn't – it was just like – it was all about being cagey, about uh, trying to, yeah, be tactical, you know. It was like how could you soft pedal? How could you, you know, um, miss a turn, whatever, and and, and and kind of be effective at the finish? Basically like doing as little work as possible to get to the end of the race. Um the way he described bike racing to me was uh was a chess match with a hundred different players, which I think I've said to you guys before. How did you like what was your intro to tactics or like, you know, was it was it early on or
1: Oh absolutely, I got a good one for this this a good story for this one. So my first ever bike race was the kind of prelude to the Red Zinger Mini classic in 1985. Mm -hmm. And it was a training race, right? And I had no idea about bike racing. I just started riding my bike. My dad said, okay, if you're going to do this race, you should go and do these training races. And I got to the first one, and it was like a three-day race in, in Boulder. And we're going, we, we start, I think it was a, like a criterium, and I'm just on the front riding, and no one's coming around me. So for the whole race, I'm sitting there like, man, I'm really good at this sport. <laughs> but then... W- then in the last lap and especially the last couple hundred meters, like three or four guys sprint around me. And I just didn't understand what that was. So I got off my bike. Uh, My mom actually took me to that, that race. And I got home and I asked, I told my dad the whole story and he goes, oh yeah, Bobby, that's something that you call drafting. And if you're drafting, you save 15 to 20% of your energy. So these guys were sucking your wheel and letting you do all the work and then they sprinted around you. So I'm like, oh, I get it. And then the next race, you know, I, I understood that a little bit more. So I started to learn, you know, from my mistakes, I started to learn. I think I got second in that race. And that was the, um, it was a, a, around uh, Den, the, the Denver area. Then we had the horse tooth stage. And then once we got to the real Red Zinger mini classic, I I knew what I was doing by then, and I actually wound up winning a couple stages and, and winning the overall, which I thought was the top of the top as a 13-year-old winning the Red Zinger Mini Classic back in 1985, only to learn that that was uncategorized racing, and there was a whole other level called licensed racing. So yeah, I I had a very early baptism into tactics, and yeah, I learned from my mistakes, and and luckily was able to... Have a long career.
2: I uh, I had a similar I had a similar first race. I remember uh, same thing riding on the front the whole way, then the guy overtaking me like at the last second and rolling me by you know an inch. And I was like, man, but I was winning the whole way. And then I got it explained to me, and I was like, oh, okay. But uh, I had a coach. I had a really old school coach who's uh, actually I uh, still a very good friend and absolute legend. But one of the best pieces of advice that he gave me, well. I wouldn't say the best pieces of advice, but I'd say the most interesting piece of advice was when I was about probably 15. So I'd been working with him for five or six years by this stage. And he said, he pulled me over one day and he sort of said, mate, like, he's like, if it gets heated out there and he's like, and you feel like you're going to punch someone, he's like, don't punch him on the bike. He's like, take him over to the side of the road. He's like, hop off the bike. He's like, climb down into the ditch so the cameras can't see you. And he's like, Take off your shoes, because if you don't take off your shoes and you swing the first punch, you're going to fall last overhead. So he's like, "Take off your shoes, then give him a belting." <laughs> l- like, let me of guess. All the advice. <laughs> l-
1: let me guess. This this gentleman was Australian.
2: He was Australian, an Australian yeah. Olympian. You, you guys,
1: uh, you guys like the old fist of cuffs, but I don't. Think lo- yeah, we shouldn't. I mean, I've never had t- a fight. I'm not. I'm. I'm not endorsing.
2: <laughs> I never had to use that tactic, but I do distinctly remember him, and I, I just remember looking at him like. What the fuck are you talking about, man? Like, it's under 15 state title. Like, who am I going to be, you know, beating the shit out of or, or having the shit beat out of me by in this race? Um, but fortunately, I never had to use that. But I'll never, I'll, I'll still remember it now. Like, <laughs> take your shoes off. Um, how, like, the, the, the Tour de France, everyone talks about, you know, like, riders don't ride upstairs because they take too much energy and and you know ev- like and, and, and the effort on the first day, you pay for it on the on the twenty-first stage and all of this sort of stuff. Like it's it's so it's it it feels like tactics dictate everything when it comes to the Tour de France. And you, you know, you've almost got to be you've got to be thinking about everything. How is that leveled up, you know, I guess even from when you started racing to to like how it is now inside those teams and, and how much is really thought about tactically.
1: Yeah. My dad, who was my first coach and probably my best coach, cause he knew me so well. He always used to say, Bobby, if you're standing, you should be sitting. And if you're sitting, you should be laying down. And it makes sense, right? Like you want to conserve as much energy as possible, but with that kind of mantra running through my head and it, it kind of, Turns you into a pretty boring person, because instead of yeah. instead of walking outside of the hotel, and you may be right across the street from a beautiful museum or church or a little cafe. I always I would just say nope. If I'm standing, I should be sitting. If I'm sitting, I should be laying down. So I was constantly in my bed. So I do believe that energy conservation thing is is real, but you can also take it to an extreme, right? Like you still have mm. to. You know, be productive as a, as a human being and as a person, and not just stay in your room and stay off your feet. But those those efforts add up, and when you're thinking about three weeks and the calorie expenditure that you have during that period, it's pretty enormous. So you wanna you wanna cool your jets as as much as possible.
2: Yeah, and we heard from uh, from yesterday from uh, Tom Southam he was talking about the tech they have inside the cars to basically be able to to preempt wind, to preempt everything basically and keep a track of, of all the riders and not only all the riders, but all the staff uh, who are moving to the next stage. Tell me like, like with with the tactics, like now with all this technology available, how, like what's a team meeting look like pre-stage? What are we, you know, are we just sitting around a room and they're handing out a sheet of paper? Are they drawing on a whiteboard or are they got like, eight TVs with, you know, phoning in like experts and that sort of shit.
1: Oh, yeah. Back in the day, it was basically a team meeting in one person's bedroom, uh, hotel room. Everybody would just kind of cram in there and they'd, you know, whip a map out and kind of tell us the general direction that we were going, where the wind was coming from, things like that. But now, no, it, it is full full techno nerd time. Like you got, you got big screen TVs, you got even drop-down movie screens where a DS can give a presentation that either he or one of the coaches worked on the night before about the, the dangerous points, the pinch points, the climbs, the percentages, the wind direction. They have an amazing amount of information to give to these guys. But after being in so many of those, I, I really felt like half the guys would just zone out during that period. It was like, okay, this is fancy. And you know, this is, this is on paper what we're going to do, but they would really wait until they got on the bike to, to make those decisions. But kind of knowing what you were getting into definitely helped, but everything could change at the drop of a hat. You know, a team could put the, you know, it could be a totally easy stage and then one team gets some information or just had it drawn up that they were going to throw it in the gutter and blows the race apart. So all those tactics, you could count on 90% of the tactics in every single bus, every single team are saying the same exact thing. But every once in a while you get that one tactical savant or that one guy with a little bit of information and they plan some big coup and it, and it works. And I was part of a team uh, at CSC when we did that quite often. And we did it in the 2004 Paris Nice. We were 100K from the finish. And all of a sudden over the radio, I hear Bjarne say, okay guys, I want you to go to the front and just team time trial, full gas. And I'm sitting there probably about 25th position and all my teammates are up on the front. I can see them starting to rev it up. And I kind of ask him, Bjarne, there's a hundred K to go to the finish. What are you thinking? And he said, basically shut up, shut up and do what I say. So by the time I got up to the front and I was the last person to make it on the back of that group. And we team time trialed for, I don't know, 60 kilometers until another group caught us, but we, we blew the race apart. And Bjarna and the team CSC became kind of known for that tactic. And now everyone's on point. Everyone's looking for, hey, when a, when a whole team starts to mass at the front at a very innocent part of the race, we, we better keep our head on a swivel. Something's going to happen. And now it's- Yeah,
2: t- I remember CSC really like changed the the dynamic of of uh, of racing, um, particularly like for the general classification guys and that sort of stuff. They were always looking for opportunities to disrupt the race. Talking, linking it back to today's stage, we saw in the end there, like you you were talking before about instinct and and all that stuff, and and Rui Costa uh, in the final few Ks there little opportune moment, just hit out and, and, and took a, uh, a flyer, which, and he held 15 seconds. He held that gap until, you know, I mean, he was probably never going to win, but, but is that what you're talking about? You know, there's always that opportunity. There's always that, that three or 4% that can be unaccounted for.
1: Yeah. There, there's a difference between being, knowing the tactics and knowing what you're going to do and actually having the patience or the discipline to do it in a race. And that was a great move, but maybe it was a little bit too early. You know, if he was, yeah. if he timed that a little bit differently. So, yeah. timing is everything, right? So, yes, you wanna be, you wanna act on spontaneity and gut feeling. But at this level, man, you, the, the deck is stacked against you, that's for sure. You better be exponentially stronger than everyone to pull off something like that. And that's why we see those, those long those attacks from that far out very rarely work. But then you see the Fabian Conchalaras, the Vyacheslav Ekimovs, when they go in the final, when they go in the final, they're going from like a K out. So they know I can do X amount of effort for one minute, two minutes. And, you know, if I win, I win. And they would win quite often with that tactic. But when you're, when you're winding it up from four, five, six K out, 10 K out, I'm sorry, it's, it's mission impossible.
2: Yeah, exactly. And before we move on to 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 hearing from uh from from Phil Gilbert, uh, I just wanna ask one last question about tactics. Um this looking at the tour, where's a good spot? Where do you reckon there could be a sleeper move? Where do you think one of these teams, you know, uh are gonna try and do something to win the overall, to to throw Ineos off? Um, where's an opportunity to to do a little sneak attack, little diversion, look left, go right?
1: Yeah, we definitely have some stages coming up after tomorrow's stage that offer some opportunities. We're getting into some really windy region, historically windy regions, not uber hard, but at the same time just kind of lumpy, you know, that typical breakaway-slash-sprinter-stage possibility. So, man, it could come from anywhere, and that's that's the hardest thing about the tour. You just have to always have your head up the road, always expect the unexpected. But I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if we see... Some major coup attempt after tomorrow before the the time trial on stage thirteen so the, yeah, the okay. last the last week of the That's tour it. yeah because the last week of the tour um, it, you know it's so hard and the guys will be so tired I don't think you could really mass you know a whole team attack per se, but coming off the mountain stage when you know maybe most of the team is in the groupetto and saving a little bit energy. Before that time trial, there's probably some opportunities between between then and the time trial.
2: Interesting, nice one, Bobby. There you go, guys. Uh, Bobby blows the lid off it. Sneak attack between here and stage 13. Keep your eyes peeled, and we'll see if that one pays off. Coming up now, we have an interview with the absolute hey cycling
1: master. Welcome, Phil. Thank Welcome. you. Welcome. How are you doing? Good, and you? Are you out on your balcony right now, Phil? Yeah, on the terrace. <laughs> nice. Give, give us a view. Switch the camera around. Just show these guys where you're at. Yeah, not bad. Oh, dude,
2: looks
3: nice enough.:
1: nice. <laughs> yeah. I miss it so much, Phil. I miss it so much.
3: Yeah, yeah. Same, same.
1: Is that where you were based when you were in Europe, Bobby? Uh, I was in Nice with the, nice. the rest of the, the poor people, you know. Um, <laughs> the the, the monogas. And, and like I said, uh, Philippe is up there on the rock. So that's another, <laughs> another level. Exactly stunning so uh so phil how we're gonna do this is uh my co-host gus morton is gonna just introduce you then we're just gonna kind of talk a little bit today's theme is tactics and that's the thing that i've always respected about you is that even when you weren't on the best form tactically you could still win races so kind of wanted to kind of wanted to mention a little bit about that you know who taught you to race um, how you've had to change your tactics from when you were a Neo pro at Francis Jou mm-hmm. compared to compared to now. And then at the end, I want to ask you a question about your bike shop. so that's that would be the place where you could tell us, you yep. know your your website and uh, address, anything that you want to say about that. So right. um, yeah, we'll keep this quick and um, you just, just how many people away. are listening? Hello, darkness, my old friend. So uh, right now we have, what, six people that are involved with the production? And then yeah. uh, I, I don't know the, the worldwide, you know, the, the people that are listening, but... I've come to
0: talk with you again.
1: And today
2: we are talking tactics with a special guest, a true cycling great, winner of almost all of cycling's biggest one-day races, most recently Pei Rubé, and a guy that Bobby uh, regards as a tactical savant. Philippe Gilbert, welcome to the show. How are you doing, man?
3: Hi, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really, I'm really happy to be involved in this talk show. And uh, it's really nice. Also, with uh, being with, in contact with uh, Bobby, it's, it's nice. He's, he's been my trainer for a few years. And uh, I used to love uh, our collaboration. It's just always nice.
1: Yeah, Phil, Phil, you and I have worked together in the past. Uh, so I do feel I know you quite well. But oh, yeah. one of the things that really impressed me about working with you and getting to know you is how professional you are throughout the entire season. You know, like you've been in the Peloton, is this your seventeenth year? Seventeen exactly. Seventeenth seventeenth year. Started in two thousand and two with Frances de Jeux, then went over to the Belgian team, Lotto or whatever variation they called themselves for yeah. what, three three years on a on the BMC for five and then the last three years with quick step team, correct?
3: Yes, exactly. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, I know a lot of riders, they're obsessed with their power meter, they're obsessed with their numbers, but a lot of them don't seem to be able to translate those numbers in training or in the lab into actual results in the race, which is the most important thing, right? Like you can exactly. get all the numbers. You can get all the numbers that you want but you're not paid to train you're paid to race it seemed to me um that regardless of the time of year or that training build that you were in you didn't even have to be on peak form but with your tactical awareness your ability to position yourself in the peloton you you were always a danger rider who taught you who taught you how to race where where do you really draw that that tactical awareness from?
3: I think it started when I was young, you know, um, in Belgium racing is uh, it's really huge and uh, I wanted to ride the bike, you know, race and first I went to see some uh, small races, uh, like when uh, categories like 12, 13, 14 years, you know, but I saw like it was like really small races and I was really not interested into that, so I was waiting uh, to be 15 and start with Real race is like 60k, uh, 40 to 50, 60 60 kilometers, you know, the distance. So it it started to be interesting, but I didn't want to have a team with me. You know, I wanted to be alone and uh, and race because uh, for me it was just about having fun and not having to respect uh, rules or follow groups, you know, and uh, I wanted to be independent and uh i think it started there because uh i had to develop my my tactic much more than others because i was always alone against the rest and uh that's why i think i developed some uh capacities of uh tactic you know and then yeah. uh and then it was a time to go to under 23 and i was already contacting by the best teams, so it was like uh the reserve of Quick Step back then. Uh, it was like Domo. Uh, they had a development team, uh, Rabobank. Uh, all the best teams like in Europe wanted to sign me, and uh, I refused that to stay in a small team with uh, good teammates, but also not the best, and uh, and stay in the same position. I think if I could choose for Rabobank, I would have won many races, many more races in the under 23. But then it's the same, like. You don't develop the same uh, abilities when you're in a, in a strong group like that.
1: And was this a conscious decision on your part? Or was it your father, your coach at the time? Or was it just just your gut feeling that you needed to learn how to race like that?
3: Yeah, it was my feelings. I didn't want to join these big groups, you know. And uh, I'd like to say, like I was, like in, in a good team with having fun and uh, still racing against them. I lost a lot of races because I was in the final, like in the World Cup. I was with five, six guys. It was three of Rubberbank and three, two of uh, of Lotto, of uh, Domo Domo Frights or something like that at the time. And uh, you know they they start to attack me like in the last 10, 15 k's. And uh, you know I could go like 10 times behind them. And after 10 times I had to let go one. And then uh, the best I could do was second. You know so sometimes i lost races but i also developed a lot of my uh my tactical points
1: yeah you may have lost some races but you have won a lot of big races as well one of the exactly. things that yeah. one, one of the things that i found quite unique about you was back in 2014 you were the only rider that won a classic you won amstel again that year but then at yeah. the end of the year you were able to win a world tour stage race in in beijing you know, those, yeah, the, that, the tactics yeah. have to be totally different between a one-day race yeah. and a world-tour Th- stage race.
3: Thanks to your training also back then. <laughs> because it was also, I was training differently with you. If I remember while well, I was training more like for stage races, uh, TT, we used to do a lot. Uh, and I really improved in that, you know, in the climbing, in the 20, 20 minutes uh, efforts, I improved because with you, I was training this a lot. And uh, I think that's why uh, I, I was climbing this long climb in China with the best climbers of the of the world. You know, I was getting third there and getting the bonification and uh, and winning the overall. Now I'm really focused on the short efforts. It's really painful. And it's really intense, and it's different. You know, it's different when you go for 20 minutes or 25 minutes uh, at 90 percent or going like 110 percent for five minutes. You know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You've definitely reinvented yourself and, you know, switching teams from, from BMC over to, to the quick step, uh, De team. It's yeah, it's, it's just great, but like looking at all your wins and you know, there's very few people that have the, the wins that you have. What, what race do you look back to and say that, you know, I wasn't the strongest, I was the smartest. And that's why I won.
3: It's hard to say which one, <laughs> It's not easy to answer that one i don't know
1: i mean you you always have the have the the legs to do, you know, yeah,
3: quite... I always had the legs because for sure you you need the legs to be in the final, but sometimes you see guys stronger than you, and uh i don't know it's hard it's really hard to say, maybe like Paris tour two thousand and nine when I beat Bonin in the sprint, I'm sure he was stronger than me, but uh I think it started already the day before when i I decided to go for uh, 54, you know a big chain ring, and uh because I knew it was tailwind and uh, and then I knew that I could do a, a long sprint and being able to always speed up with this gear, you know so I think that i I, I went that race with this decision because I had a bigger gear than him and uh, and I started the sprint at 300. And he stayed there like uh, the closest he came is five, five meters from me on the line. You know.
1: Wow. Wow.
3: So maybe so, that's maybe that's one. That's one a good example.
1: And of all your victories, and we know that you've won almost every classic. I think the only one that you're missing out of your collection trophy case is Milan Sanremo. Correct?
3: Exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So of all the races that you've won, what are you, which one are you the most proud of? I mean you've won almost everything there is to win. So does one stand out more than another one?
3: Yeah, for me Liege is it's always special in my heart because I'm I'm from there and you know it's like uh this race passed right in front of my parents' house. And this race I saw like since I'm like one or two years, you know. So and it's uh it's a World Cup, it's a main event in the cycling world. And uh I didn't even think about being able to start that race one day, and then uh, out of the second, you you, you just turn pro and then you do the race, and then uh, you start to become better and better, and then I was entering top ten, top five, podium, and then finally won, and uh, it took me like a lot of years, and I think after uh, almost ten years pro, I I won that one, and uh, it was really, really a great, great moment.
1: Wow. Yeah. And, you know, Phil, Phil, I know that you're down on the Côte d'Azur. You live in Monaco. You do a lot of work with the junior teams down there. You're one of the most fun guys to ride with. All the guys that are in that area, like when they get to ride with you, they have such an enjoyable time. But you also, yeah. own, you also own a bike shop in Monaco, correct?
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, first of all, I think that this is why I'm, I'm still so motivated after 17 years of pro. You know, I, I really enjoy it. It's not a work for me. It's like, it's still a passion. I still love it. Yesterday, I did five hours in the rain. Uh, it was a lot of wind. Uh, it was cold and uh, i still did my 5 hours i was i had on the schedule and uh, i did the exercise i had to do you know so it's not i don't take this as a sacrifice it's just i enjoy it you know so that's the first the main reason why i'm i'm, I'm still at this level from the for the moment and then of course i like to go with the young guys you know uh, even the uh, young pros uh, because it's always special i don't speak uh, about the same things with uh a guy of my age and uh, a young guy of 23, 24, you know, just turned pro and, and, and start to make good results. So I like to, to share all the experience with these guys, you know, and of course, with the sometimes I go with the, the sons of Vinokurov or with my own sons. And uh, for me, it's, it's just it's slower, but it's, uh, it's really fun also.
1: I just envision. Any junior rider in the area just going and hanging out in front of your bike shop there in Monaco, just waiting for the chance that maybe, maybe you're there. Do you go to your bike shop?
3: Yeah, yeah, I go there quite often. And uh, sometimes we, we make appointment there and we start from there, you know. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's really nice because we start to have a small community. Especially in the winter, we try to do, like, a ride going, like, from Monaco to San Remo. Um, or the other side to Antibes, you know, uh, for the people who knows. And uh, it's on the coast. It's really nice. We're having a coffee and back uh, back to the shop, you know, and uh, it's really great moments.
1: So, uh, you know, we have a lot of listeners that may vacation over to the Côte d'Azur. Where, where can they actually find your bike shop? Is it the Philippe Gilbert bike shop? Is that the name of it?
3: Yeah, it's a uh, bike shop by Philippe Gilbert. Uh, if you Google it, you have uh, all the info and the link for the website. And uh, it's quite easy to find. We have a good parking places next to it, so, which is not easy to have in Monaco. So, no, no, it's, it's, it's really well uh, located.
1: Fantastic, fantastic. Well, you know, we, we had a little segment yesterday. The way that you're speaking and the way the person that I know who you are, after cycling, last question. After cycling, would you consider being moving over to a coaching role or possibly a DS role? Does that at all interest you? Because you sound so passionate about it. Still,
3: yeah, I am. But the only thing I'm scared is that uh, I will be in the same circle, you know, like traveling, uh, missing home, um, you know, all the same sacrifice, but not for the same reason. And uh, I know DS or manager is a really great job. It's a hard work. But uh, you don't have the same emotions, you know. On the bike, I can find really a reason to do it because it's like these emotions you can never find in life. Um, even now, I'm not in the tour, and it was painful for me. But when I see Julian or Viviani winning, my teammates, I'm really happy for them. And I know, I know the moments they're living now. It's like they're like on an other planet, you know. When you win two stages like this, you have the yellow jersey. It's, so I know what the what we can feel, and uh, I I don't know if it's possible to do the same kind of life without these emotions, you know.
1: Yeah. Well, at the very least, Philippe, thank you so much for coming on the show. Keep playing it forward with that that new younger generation. Let them learn from you because yeah. there's <laughs> not there's not many nicer guys that are willing to take their time to 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 talk to neo professionals, young professionals, and especially juniors. So thank you so much for for doing what you do and, and, and being we also around. Organized,
3: uh, we also organized a classic. It's like a classic Philippe Gilbert in Belgium. It's uh, on the 18th of August. And uh, it's one of the nicest in Belgium because it's uh, finished on La Redoute, you know, and uh, it's really nice for them. Uh, they, do, they climb two times La Redoute. And the uh, first time when they're at the top, it's like a really short lap. And five k later, they are climbing for the final finish. You know, so it's really intense for them. And uh, my parents started organizing this like 37 years ago, and uh, until now, I think it's quite unique. All the winners, they are they turn pro after, so 100% wow. of the winners were turning <laughs> pro. So it's always nice when when I every time when I can be. There, i tell the guys you know you want to three four years you will be pro and uh, like this deck the others wow that's so that's awesome uh, i'm also man. proud that's of awesome. that organization yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah you should be really nice so man, well I
2: appreciate your time thank you so much you're welcome you're really welcome. Good stuff and i wish there,
3: yeah. you all the best with the podcast and a uh,
2: lot of success
3: all right <laughs> i love put your socks on
2: thanks man <laughs> appreciate
3: that
2: <laughs> okay um, amazing yeah that was really good uh, thank you so much for your time all right
1: thanks Phil all the best for the rest of the season huh yeah
3: thank you bye bye see you Bobby right. see you guys ciao
1: what a legend
2: What he sounds like a really good guy I've never met I mean I've never met Phil um, I also didn't know you coached him Bobby
1: yeah I worked with him back uh, when I was at Team BMC in 2014, 2000, uh, 2013, I was there in 2014.
2: Yeah, nice. And that was, uh, I remember when he, when he won the, the Tour of Beijing and, and I, was, I was anticipating a move to the general classification for him, but it uh, didn't pan out. He still went on to go and win about every other race that there is possible to win. Let's talk about tomorrow, the big one,
1: Oh, it's the a first big one. one. It's a doozy. Tomorrow it, mm. tomorrow is that first big GC day in the tour. This is the one that, since they released the the course back in December, this was the one that everyone circled like, you know what, we need to go into the tour fresh, but we need to be ready for this day. And this is the one that, you know, this is time to let the big dogs eat. Someone, <laughs> someone has to stamp his authority on the race right here and make the statement that says, Listen, you guys are going for second place. We often see that real, you know, may, mega effort, mega separation that just basically kind of puts it out of the ballpark, and everyone else is racing for, for second second place. But man, it's just it's just going to be on from from the start. The thing yeah, is,
2: it's it's a base of a day six seven categorized climbs tomorrow.
1: What do we got? One, two, three, four, five, six, six categorized climbs. Yeah. But it's quite interesting because the sprint is very early in the race tomorrow. So you basically have a sprint at 29 kilometers. So I think that Bora will keep the group together so that Sagan can get the max points for that sprint. Um, Not to say that people aren't going to try to get away there. But then after that second sprint, you basically go into what is a 30K climb. We have a Cat mm. We have a cat 1 at, at 45 and a Cat 3 at 50, but there's really no descent in between those two. So you're basically climbing for 30, 30 kilometers. Then you descend down to the Cat 2 at 74 kilometers. That one's you know not too long, 5.3 kilometers at 7%-ish, before starting the, the Cat 1. And that's another big one, 11, 11 kilometers. That's at kilometer 105. And then you kind of go down a little bit. You have a Cat 3, a Cat 2, and that Cat 2 at 141.5 kilometers, that's the one with the time bonus sprint on it. So I Yeah, think,
2: which is an interesting addition. I like that.
1: Yeah, I think they're just trying to lighten the race up a little bit, liven it up, get, get guys attacking, uh, reward those people that do attack right there. But it it will be on from that point on. There's no doubt about it. Then leading down into Planche de Belfi, you know the finishing climb at 7k at basically nine percent average but this year they've added an extra steep unpaved kilometer that has some pitches between 20 and 24 percent on the dirt and is that
2: coming at the end
1: that is at the end so the last kilometer is unpaved road so as if that climb wasn't hard enough they decided hey let's make this little goat path up here and go even higher
2: so take it to level 11
1: this this is a big day. Uh, we're and gonna, it's the two has sp- been
2: here before, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So in 2012, f- this was where Chris Froome won the stage. In 2014, Nibali won the stage. And in 2017, Aru won. And the interesting fact about that is that everyone who had the yellow jersey after the stage of Planche de la Belfie went on to win in Paris. So that that tells you right there that this is... Put on your big boy pants. It's ready to roll. It's going to separate the contenders from the pre the contenders from the pre- <laughs> the pretenders. <laughs> the pretenders, yeah, hard word to say. And it's 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 just going to be on. It's going to be on, and we're going to see a very aggressive controlling of the pace by Ineos, in my opinion. I think definitely they're going to ride like they have the yellow jersey, even though right now they don't, because they do have you know two options the defending mm-hmm. champion Garrett Thomas and then Bernal but there's there's always somebody that's going to show us you know give us a little bit of a surprise I think so my yeah, pick I think it, my pick for yeah, tomorrow he's... taking all this into account is Bernal I think Bernal has been waiting in the wings he's been like that perfect teammate he's been on the front he hasn't taken any gaps I, I'm going to pick him because with that sort of climb, with that sort of steepness, I just don't know if Garant is there. And with the the crash that Jakob Fuglsang had, although he looks like he's recovered very well from that, I just think that this could be the the opportunity for Bernal to really stamp his authority on the race.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think that's a of all the riders, he's certainly been uh, been the one that's um, that's had his face. You know on the front and around the front most of the time, and hasn't lost any time more importantly uh I'm going with Dan Martin, Ooh, just good because, one. yeah, I think you know first mountain stage, it's steep, he's punchy as all hell, um and he's not he won't be too tired yet, so yeah, I'm going with Dan Martin,
1: not a bad choice, not a bad choice yeah he's he's quite explosive on those sort of climbs, and especially being in the f- first week of the tour, a little bit fresher, so yeah. It'll be exciting, but by, by the end of the stage tomorrow, we're going to have a much better idea of the overall contenders for this race. There's no doubt about that.
2: 100% guaranteed. Thanks very much, Bobby. Fantastic show. Tomorrow we have, obviously, the theme, Mountaintop Finishes. Makes sense. Uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Number one cycling podcast. Put your socks on. Uh, you can get us on iTunes, get us on SoundCloud, go over to... Uh, www.villanews.com. You'll find us there at Vela News Voices on Twitter. Tweet
1: at us, get at us. Hell yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. Don't forget to put your socks on. Eww. Nice one. That felt good. <laughs> inspired by the fabled jerseys at the tour road id has rolled out a limited edition tour de france wrist id unlike any other wrist ids in their lineup this incredibly sexy id comes with four interchangeable bands yellow polka dot green and white We all know that when you're getting ready for a ride, you have to color coordinate, so you got your socks that match your kit, and now you have a wrist ID that can match your kit. This is a $50 valuable. This is a $50 value. This is a $50 value available in limited quantities for only $34.99. Head on over to road ID slash TDF band to get yours before they run out. Hey, 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 Gus, um, if you ordered this and you have four different bands to choose from, which would be, which would be your, the one of choice, which one would you wear first?
2: Which one would I, ah, dude, I'd have to go, ah, man, I'd have to go polka dot, you know, I don't even, I I, like, there's just something about the polka dots that, uh, you know, get me a bit fired up.
1: Yeah. I, you know, taking into account, you know, my sock option, my shoe color, my bike color, I'd have to go with the white. I'd probably stay away from the polka dot myself. Oh yeah.
2: Well, I was just getting into the theme, you know, I'm a big themes guy. So, you know, (laughs) I'm going to get those sent to me by the way. That is a good deal. Um, so I'm going to get hooked right up. Thanks guys. Cool, okay, should we cut there? Cutting in, three, two, one.